Welcome to the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. And this episode is the first of two episodes that we're going to do for a dedicated discussion of Chapter 3 of Peace. Before we begin, though, I'd really like to encourage those of you who are not already with us on Patreon to join us over there because we have just released an episode on the Gene Wolfe short story cues from The Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories. And uh, this was a crazy one. You're not wrong. Uh, this is one of the craziest wolf stories I think we've read. I mean, as we talked about in the episode, it feels a little bit like a, a joke. The whole story is kind of set up for a punchline. There are some wild interpretations. There's no good word of this story uh, that we, we don't talk about. So that'll be something I really look forward to seeing on the forums. Once we get this story out there, uh, we kind of approached it from a from a pretty short and uh, quick angle just because it's it's... It's Wolf's weirdest story, I think, that we've read so far. Yeah, I mean, I think our approach to that story was, hey, we need a lighthearted <laughs> excursion from peace. And uh, <laughs> we definitely treated it that way. But it was a lot of fun. So I hope people will want to check that out. So, yeah, we are indeed going to do two discussion episodes on Chapter 3. That'll probably end up being the case for Chapter 4 as well. But this case, anyway, we've got the discussion organized into three big headings. This includes characters and writing craft, and those will be the topics for the next episode. And in this episode, then, we're going to focus on the stories within the story. And of course, we'll start with the main attraction, which is Julia Smart's story about Mr. Tilly. Yeah, The Alchemist, to me, so far, is the strangest chapter of Peace. And Peace, I don't know, it's slowly maybe revealing itself to be more of a collection of anecdotes or stories within stories, moments in time, and then also these eventful moments of the past for Dennis Weir that has been stitched together with a sort of mad plan that I don't think, Glenn, you or I have a real handle on just yet. (laughs) No. Worth three chapters into the book, and it's still really difficult for me to see where this is all going. Memoirs often take the form of a kind of buildings roman, of a kind of how I became who I am sort of story, or how this event shaped me, or you know how I overcame some difficult odds, something along those lines. And peace feels like something wholly different than a memoir of that sort. I'm not honestly even sure that it's officially been marketed as a memoir, but I think that Neil Gaiman's description of the book that, you know, we have at the end of the Orb 2012 edition that has really made the rounds for people interested in Wolf has kind of helped to set expectations of the novel to codify the narrative, uh, to give us a familiar expectation that we can engage with when starting the book. But so far, to me at least, Peace has this really sort of alien quality to it. It may still turn out to be a story about how Weir became who he is. But as I said, we're now over halfway through the book, and we know almost as little about Weir as we did when we started. So yeah, as you said, Glenn, this discussion, these two discussion episodes will be a good place for us to pause and maybe take stock of what we have so far in the book, because uh, chapter three is almost a sort of pause in the narrative in a weird way, or the flow of the narrative. Uh, and maybe we can orient ourselves a little bit to where we think we're going. So yes, we will talk about characters. We'll talk about the Julia Smart story, the Aunt Olivia story uh, at the birthday party. And we'll talk about craft of the novel because this chapter is a wonder. And I think we might be able to get the hang of how Wolf is structuring the novel. And maybe we can also determine whether or not we think Weir is structuring or controlling the narrative or whether he's more of a subject to involuntary memories. I don't know how deep we'll get into that, but it's worth thinking about, I think, <laughs> especially with this with this chapter. So yeah, we're going to talk about Julius Smart's story first, because it really is the biggest chunk of this chapter. And we'll talk about Julius Smart's character in particular when we talk about uh, the characters that show up in this chapter and what we know about them. It's clear that Julia Smart's story about his job with Tilly and the carnival and all that stuff has has had a huge influence on Weir. Twice throughout this chapter, during Weir's digressions, he tells us that he's tried to retell this story on different occasions. And we'll talk more about what this might mean in a little bit. But let's just talk about the story in general. Let's talk about 
what the ghost story business of this, you know, about Tilly's family uh, and about Tilly in general, like what he does in his professional life, what his home life is like. So maybe we should just start there and talk about what we learned about Tilly and his family, what Smart learns. Remember, Smart is only with Tilly for five days before he dies. And then Smart basically inherits Tilly's home and business. So Glenn, I guess the first question we should really ask is, what do we learn about Tilly as a character? What is his home life like? And why is this important to the maybe the larger narrative that we're getting? Yeah. I mean, Tilly is this really fascinating character. And he's this real classic, you know, gothic character or or horror story character in that he is a man alone with a tragic past. And he's also living in a house that has, you know, some interesting uh, features, some interesting characteristics to it. Um, at least, you know, the way that Julia Smart presents it in the narrative is describing the houses uh, down there, wherever there is. I mean, I guess maybe I've come around to the idea that it is the panhandle of Florida, but uh, <laughs> we, we could take that up too. But, you know, those houses maybe all look like each other. And so Mr. Tilly's house in that case isn't all that distinct from his neighbors. But from the perspective of Julia Smart, who's telling the story, right, that house has some interesting features and some character to it. And then also, hey, maybe it's haunted, right? So, you know, all of that's going on there just in kind of the the who Tilly is and and the kind of accoutrements for him. But for all of the information that we do actually get about his tragic backstory of his wife being dead, his son being dead, uh, some sort of implication that maybe there have been at least one dog that has also died, possibly several dogs that have died. We don't know how long ago those deaths happened. Uh, we don't know when they happened, why they happened, what the circumstances were. We don't actually get any details about any of that. We don't even know how old Tilly actually is. I assume he's like in his 50s or something like that. I, I mean, you're right to point out that it feels like the house that Tilly lives in, that Julius Smart ends up living in, is really in, maybe indistinct from his neighbors. But at least in the text of the the story and Julius's telling of the story, there's this you know neighborhood sense that it's the haunted house on the block. I mean, right. <laughs> I, I, I grew up in a in a row of uh, row homes, you know, uh, townhomes in in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and all those houses were more or less the same uh, design on the interior. Maybe the exterior was a little different, like these different color brick to break up the the, the facades. But there was a haunted house on our block, you know, like it's there's just a house always that, that <laughs> is distinguished by being haunted in some way. And the way that Tilly's house is haunted is, is, is really interesting, I think, because at first we get the sense that it's the wife that's haunting the house. And I don't know, there's ectoplasm or like ghost water or something that's going on there. <laughs> we don't really feel that Tilly's son is haunting the house. But maybe he is in some way. And then there's this this dog scratching and scrabbling that's going on outside of Tilly's door. So it's very strange that like we see two of maybe the three figures in Tilly's family and his past that that lead to his tragedy kind of showing up to haunt the house. And I wonder then if we see any evidence of of Tilly's son kind of participating in this haunting. Yeah, Tilly definitely refers to the ghost as her, right? That's the pronoun he he uses. So he does seem to think it is a single ghost. And, you know, the 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 sound of this ghost walking, like the gait of, of this person walking, I guess is, you know, one of the ways that he knows that it is his wife. I'm not sure that the scratching is a different entity. And I, I actually don't think it's the dog. I think that the scratching is also still just the ghost. And, you know, although Tilly never said, this is the ghost of my dead wife. I mean, I think that is the implication, though. You know, we don't know. That's the thing. Like maybe Tilly moved into this house when he, you know, started his career. This is the house he bought with his new family or for his new family, and um, it just was haunted when they moved in, right? Like we don't know any of that, and so we're we have to just piece together. But I think that the strong implication is that it is his wife who is haunting him, and although we don't know anything about how ghosts function in this story, right? There's no point at which we get any rules because, um, 
despite all of our jokes about it, it turns out this is not actually an episode of Supernatural in which someone is going to like <laughs> figure out how to defeat the ghost. And that's the story. Uh, that's not it at all. So we don't know. So we don't understand what goes into making a dead person a ghost, what motivates a ghost, right? We don't know anything about that. But my sense is that this is because Tilly did something pretty terrible to his family. And it's hard for me to not think that Tilly is somehow responsible for the death of their son, possibly the death of his wife as well. And now she is haunting him. That that was the feeling that I had. Like that's an, an inference that I am making, though nothing explicit in the text says that at all. Well, I think one of the ways we pick up on on that idea as an inference is this mysterious third room. Uh, and, and that's a big part of this ghost story, at least for me, it's something that's still kind of stuck in my craw, <laughs> like, right. you know, yeah, it's, do it's you, crazy. Yeah, it, absolutely. Yeah. Do you even believe Tilly? Do you believe that what's in that room is lumber from his store? I'm less concerned about Tilly and what he says, because smart is just there for five days. And sure, you have a border, you want to keep them out of a certain room of the house, you know, just. Don't go in there. You know, this is Beauty and the Beast. It's uh, Bluebeard. It's Arsenic and Old Lace. I mean, this is a classic uh, sort of trope of uh, horror ghost stories is don't go in the room. The problem is that Smart claims to believe in the ghost and that it's just going to fizzle out because he didn't do anything to harm anyone. And then the family, Tilly's wife's family, won't even go near the third room. And then Smart never talks about what was actually inside. It's just this vacuum in the middle of this story, especially considering how much we learn that Smart likes to play these sort of mystery games with his audience when he's telling the story. You know, what did Tilly not eat for breakfast and why? We get an answer to that. That's how many grits. I don't think the third room is full of lumber or grits. You know, there's no information. We don't get any information about what's in there except what Tilly says, which is kind of a shifting story, as I pointed out in our recap episode. Yeah, I think that's more likely to be full of grits than full of lumber. <laughs> yeah, you, you said that his family, you know, when they inherit the house and agree to let Julia Smart continue to live there, the same arrangement that he had with with Tilly, you said they, they don't go near the room, but that's not actually what Smart says in the story. He says they never tried to get into the room, which to me strongly implies that it would be an effort to get into the room. Like there's, it's locked, it has a unique key. We don't know where the key is. So it's a totally locked room. So to get into the room, you would have to take down the door, get in through the window in some way, right? But, you know, something that we, you know, see happen with the house uh, when, when Smart goes into Tilly's room through the window, for example. And so, you know, there have to be some extra effort put into getting into that room. And so the family who inherits this house just don't bother to do it. And I think we're also left with the idea that Julia Smart never does either. I certainly imagine he looked real hard for the key, but upon not finding it, just decided to leave things alone. So I don't know that Julia Smart knows what's in there either, but I do not at all believe Tilly's story about what's in there, where he says, I've you know sold all of my son's kid furniture, and all that's in there is this lumber from my store. I don't believe that. I think it is full of his kid's stuff still. I, I don't believe it's full of his kid's stuff either. I mean, I have no idea what's in there, but it's certainly something related to the haunting, because these are the two kind of major mysteries of this story. What's in the third room? And is there a ghost? Is there a real ghost? And these, there's a kind of tension in this story with these genuinely unanswered questions in Smart's telling of the story. Right. I mean, there was certainly a point in reading this story when I thought, oh, there is, there is no ghost. There's, there's no ghost in this story, but there is something going on in the house. There is someone walking around the house. There was someone who was in the bedroom with Julia Smart that night, but it's, it's a person. It's a real person who just lives in this other bedroom. You know, this is in the exact plot of Jane Eyre, right? There is actually right. a mysterious person in a locked room uh, that the new person living in the house is told not to go in. I, I walked away from that. I don't buy that anymore. I don't believe that anymore. But, it, you know, it might be true. I certainly would listen to people's argument for for that being the case. But I do think that this is an actual supernatural story, that it is the ghost of, of Tilly's wife. And my suspicion is that Look, like, Tilly was doing weird pharmaceutical mad scientist stuff to his family and possibly to his son, and that 
that's how he he died. Maybe the son actually got sick and Tilly decided that, you know, I, we don't need a doctor or what the doctor says is wrong. I can cure him of this thing, but then actually doesn't, makes it worse or something like that, that there's something tragic about the death of his son, even beyond just the tragedy of any child dying, uh, that there's something even even beyond that that is is personally tragic about the cause of the death and that that's, that's what the ghost of his wife is is up to. Right, because the way the ghost exacts revenge on Tilly is by using his very real, very <laughs> working tincture or potion to turn skin to stone uh, and sneak it into his food. Um, this, I suppose, could be Tilly's own mode of working towards a suicide or something like that, and he doesn't realize he's doing it. Um, but it does seem as though there is a relationship between his alchemical experiments or chemistry experiments with regards to uh, potions and the way the ghost is exacting revenge upon him. And that sort of takes us into, I guess, Tilly's professional life. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not sure Tilly was intentionally performing experiments on himself in order to get the right uh, level of medication to turn skin to stone. This is maybe something that's come back to bite him. But it turns out Tilly does create a kind. I'm using the word potion here, uh, a kind of medical show tincture to turn skin to stone. And he has other tinctures that help, as the text calls them, special people, but the sideshow acts in the carnival kind of remain sideshow acts or make a living at being the sideshow acts. So Tilly has this whole side business. He's got to experiment on this somehow. He's not going to experiment on his customers where he's selling snake oil, essentially, but it works to people all over the country who work in carnivals. What do you make of this, Glenn? Yeah, I, I think if it works, it's not technically snake oil, right? So that's the thing that sets Tilly apart from something that's actually really part of the oeuvre of the the early 20th century you know, sort of American lore, right? Is, uh, you know, having all of these these traveling medicine shows, the traveling carnivals as well, right? There are these people who are traveling around and they're, they're up to stuff. And the, the medicine shows in part, particular, right? This idea that, you know, science is here, science can do anything. Anything and you know, just buy our thing, and it will do whatever it is that you're looking for it to do. But of course, none of it actually works. Uh, a lot of it's actually got other drugs in it, like you know, codeine or like cocaine and stuff. So you're like, yeah, I feel feel pretty good. I took that for a week, and it was great. It didn't actually do the thing I needed it to do, but you know, it was a nice week anyway. Right? That's a huge part of the sort of lore, like this image that we have of America, especially Middle America. I think in the the early 20th century, and, and that is a world right that that Wolf grew up in. Right? Wolf would have been growing up uh, really right at the end of of that world. And so this would have had a kind of, I think, magical sort of fascination for him in much in the way that it, it does for Ray Bradbury as well. And this very much feels like a Ray Bradbury story. But all of that is really just to drive at the point here that, you know, Tilly is interesting in that he's actually making things that, that truly work, right? Uh, but then is doing it on the sly as this kind of side business where he's like opening the the store early so that uh, people can come in and, you know, no one will know what's going on, right? This seems to be something he's hiding from people, which is kind of the antithesis of what the medicine shows are. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, do you think Smart continued on with Tilly's side business after he took over the shop? I do not at all think that he did that. Like, definitely hard no on that. But I, I have to assume that at some point in chapter four or five, we're going to learn a little bit more about what the company that Weir inherits actually does. And maybe, maybe it will turn out to actually be selling something that Tilly invented, right? That smart took, uh, maybe did something a little bit different with, you know, doing some of his own experiments. But we might see that, although. Julia Smart, I definitely don't think continued to uh, sell these medicines that are going to do really harmful things to children uh, or other people, anyone who might take them, uh, that I don't think that he continued that, that he still may ultimately owe his wealth to the fact that Tilly did that. But that'll, I guess, be a discussion point for if that turns out to be true, we can talk about that when we we find out. But that's, I guess, you know, for me, a real big question here is why Tilly's in this business to begin with, right? He doesn't seem to live opulently, 
right? Like, as we've said, his house just is another house on the block here, right? So he doesn't seem to have any kind of like massive amount of wealth. I mean, I think he's living like a, you know, a fairly standard upper middle class lifestyle here, but he's not lavishing in in opulence because of this job. It doesn't seem like he needs this Money that like the pharmacy shop itself is doing just fine. Certainly, uh, if if we believe that Julia Smart didn't continue the business, it did just fine for him to save up enough money to start his own business, right? So I, I just, I don't even really maybe know why Tilly's doing this to begin with, how he got into it. And so I have real questions about what motivates him and then also just the ethics of this thing that he's doing. Right. There's that moment where... Smart goes to visit the carnival. And I just want to say here about the the carnival here in the Sideshow Act that this is just a a, a beautiful touch of Americana in this story. And, and we've kind of been tracking these really through the founding of America, through the representation of, you know, like Native Americans or nature. Um, and this is another really big feature, Glenn, as you pointed out, of American history in the early 20th century. I mean, for those who are interested, you could, I guess, watch the old series Carnival um, <laughs> if you really wanted to. But that, that, I mean, this section really reminded me of that show. But yeah, Wolf is really engaging with this other side of Americana, the 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 quacks, the quackery, the uh, sideshows, the fascination with deformity, with the other, with people who are on the fringes of our society, who find work in these, in these traveling shows. And, you know, all of this is kind of leading up to the depression and the dust bowl and things like that. But there is that moment where, as I said, Smart goes to visit these people and they give too much medicine to the boy to turn him into a dog boy, right? Because they want him to be like a dog puppy and to grow hair all over. And this medicine is full of opium. And it seems to me then that Tilly didn't say, I am very serious about this. More will not be better for your child. Give them exactly this amount every day. Um, it seems as though Tilly gave them the medicine and took a huge wad of cash, and that was kind of the end of the transaction. And that, to me, seems like really unethical. If you're selling medicine that does like weird stuff to people's bodies and filling it with opium, um, maybe you want to be real specific about instructions. But maybe he is kind of experimenting on his customers a little bit. But on the other hand, Litho, the stone man knows exactly how to take Tilly's medicine so that the effects wear off and he heals and then he can go back on the course or whatever. So it's really strange what we get here. We see in these two different people at the carnival and how they use Tilly's medicine uh, for good or ill effect. Yeah, there's there's maybe an answer to your question there about the the dosing and the, the instructions, which is that uh, Tilly didn't get a chance to talk to Janet very much again about this, because at the moment of delivering the medicine, Julia Smart is standing there in the shop. And so like they just do the exchange and she leaves. She knows something about how it's supposed to be administered and, and says that she decided, you know, to, to, to not do it that way. So presumably they had had some conversation about it at some point, like when she placed the order or something like that, or maybe there were some written instructions, you know, in the bag of the the medicine or something like that. But yeah, she and Tilly don't speak about it because Julia Smart is there. So uh, perhaps his presence there actually created this this problem, though I don't know that that's something that Wolf is really thinking about in the, the crafting of this of this story. But my general sense is that Tilly actually is pretty good at this, that he's actually not trying to do harm to people, that he's actually trying to create, you know, mad scientist alchemical potions that do the things that uh, he says that they do, that turn people to stone, turn people into uh, dog boys and whatever other things that people want, that he has figured out how to do this, this kind of Dr. Moreau type of thing with chemistry somehow, and that it's good business for him for these things to work and to work well, to keep his customers alive. And that this seems to me to actually be his main business rather than an actual side business. I guess it kind of leads to another odd mystery of the story, which is, you know, where does Tilly go when <laughs> Janet shows up at right. the store and he's not at home and he's not at the store? There's just, you know, when you're reading a story, you just kind of blow through this sort of stuff. You're like, okay, he's absent, and this lets Julia Smart get involved in the action of the plot. But where else would Tilly 
go? I mean, I don't think we're going to get an answer to that. And I don't know if it's crucial to the text here, but it's another lingering mystery for me. And I don't think it's an insignificant detail, right? Because that's in the story from a plot perspective. That's in the story as a device for why they have to take Julia Smart to the carnival with them, right? Because they want Tilly. They want to get Tilly. And and so if they had found Tilly at home, right, they would have taken Tilly. But we also don't need that device, right? You could do a different plot device there to say, well, we can't find Tilly, so we're going to take you. It could simply have been, you know, we came here to get Tilly. Tilly's not here. We're in a hurry. So we are going to take you. Right, we're not going to waste time looking for Tilly, so we are just going to take you. That's something that you know could just be you know a motivation, right? It's a little bit hand wavy, I suppose, but you know you don't need them to go looking for Tilly and not find them. That's actually an extra step in your your story. Uh, and in fact, I could see a lot of editors actually saying that extra step is unnecessary and takes up too many paragraphs. So let's let's do away with that altogether, right? So Wolf put that in there intentionally. Right. He wants us to know that Tilly has lied to Julia Smart about where he is going. He wants us to wonder where he is. The answer may not matter, right? This may just be a detail that is there to serve to build up mystery around Tilly. And it definitely did that for me, right? Because I really do want to know where he went, what he was up to. We don't know anything about this town. We don't know what are the options, right? Like, did he, was he at the bowling alley? Is there a movie theater? Like, is he at the bookstore? Where could he possibly be? And what might he be up to there? We just can't possibly know. But I think it's a really great storytelling detail there. A sort, you know, craft move, a writing craft move to give us this, this extra sense of, of mystery, right? To see that, yeah, Tilly, Tilly's got other stuff going on, and he doesn't want Julia Smart to know about what that stuff is. Yeah, it really adds to the unease of the whole situation. Like, Julia Smart comes to town. So you've got your, like, classic, a stranger comes to town sort of story told from the perspective of the stranger. And then all this weird stuff just starts happening. But Julia Smart's focus is really his own success. So he doesn't put a lot of weight on the fact that there's a ghost in the house, that he's got this job at double the salary, but he just has to cook food, that Mr. Tilly is hiding stuff from him or even doing this medicine show. It seems as though Julia Smart might represent a certain kind of, you know, entrepreneurial attitude that normalizes all the strangeness of the way our economy functions because he's benefiting from it in the moment. And meanwhile, his benefactor is dying. He's selling drugs to the carnival. He doesn't really know or care what's going on with the town around him. He's just thinking about oranges and saving up enough money to get back nearer to home. And that's just kind of an interesting I don't guess sidebar of something that we can say about Julius Smart or or Wolf or weird storytelling here, but the, then there we get this explicit critique of industrial capitalism in this Janet section, where we're looking at also immediately in that moment the effects of overdosing on opium, and then that probably should make us think of Doctor Van Ness at the opening of the chapter telling Weir that. You know, happy is the man who has found work, but also happy is the addict who has found a quart of heroin. This all just feels too entangled to me to think that it's unintentional. So maybe we should just take a moment here to think about how these things are connected. Glenn, what do you make of the the intrusion of Janet's presentation of herself as a kind of ideal pursuer of the American dream? To put it plainly, I think there's a real theme here, you know, I think between Janet and Dr. Van Ness here, that is work is for suckers, right? Going to a job is a type of hell. Of course, hey, that's a story Gene Wolfe wrote that we talked about for a lot of episodes. (laughs) And that attitude is definitely here, both in Janet and Dr. Van Ness. And I think something that really ties them together and, and ties them together within the context of the early 20th century, 
And this this bit of Americana that we get here, this uh, American lore of the traveling circus and this really kind of the, the promise of America, right? This era here, the early 20th century, this is when we really start to think about, you know, the American dream as this this proper noun, as this this thing, right? As uh, America, not just as this um, uh, grand political experiment, as it has been just described many times, but actually as this grand social and economic experiment in which it's not just that we're trying to have, you know, liberty against monarchy, but that we're actually trying to build a society in which we can have the greatest prosperity for the greatest number of people. And that that is the American dream. And for us now, right, following the Second World War, the American dream is really tied in with home ownership. But in the early 20th century, it was actually really tied in with running your own business. Uh, the late 19th and early 20th century, right? Following, maybe we should say, uh, the Civil War coming in at the, at the end of the Industrial Revolution, the idea of everyone should be their own business owner. Everyone should be in control of or in charge of their own livelihood and not be dependent on other people. Because work is for suckers, right? And something that we have seen Wolf talk about in, in many places for a lesson is one of them. The fifth head of Cerberus is another, right? That if you have a job, that is a type of dependency, right? And that's explicitly what Janet says here. You have a job, you're dependent on that job. You lose that job, you have nothing else. She doesn't want that life for her and she doesn't want that life for her son. So she's trying to give him something that is a part of him that he will be able to sell to other people as a business for the rest of his life, right? That's that for her, that is the American dream is that she's going to give him a business that he can have. So he won't ever have to be dependent on, on someone else that he can have this, this real freedom. And of course, right. The contrast here between what Janet is saying and even what Dr. Van Ness is saying too, about like what work is, right. The contrast there is Weir himself, who we know has kind of uh, worked himself to, to death. Uh, and uh, just to, just a side note here before I kick it over to you, Brandon, to comment on all of that. Uh, it seems likely that uh, Finch's uh, screams and shrieks are being picked up on the microphone. <laughs> so let me just assure listeners, he's fine. He just had lunch and he's learning how to shout and shriek and scream as loud as he can. And I don't know. Uh, I think we all wish we were that young again. So <laughs> having that much fun. Yeah. Finding the power of your voice. Hey, that's kind of like how we make a living on <laughs> Temple Media, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right about um, about the connections that you made there between Janet's critique of how industrial capitalism is an, as a kind of slavery, uh, how Weir is kind of caught up in that explicitly, but then how Weir views smart also looking at the kind of the bigger narrative as apart from that, even though smart works his whole life, he doesn't stop working. He just gets more and more ownership. Uh, at first, it's a couple of st he doesn't own a store. He's uh, getting paid to run somebody else's business. Then he saves up and buys his own business. Then maybe he invents something and opens a factory. And that's another arc of the American dream as well that we're, we see really in the last third of the 20th century, and especially in the first, I don't know, quarter of the 21st century, though maybe I'm uh, speaking out of turn here, is that the goal of ownership is to get bought either by having an initial public off offering and, and having shareholders own parts of your company um, so you can make money off of those shares or for a bigger company to come in and buy your company. So the, the kind of dream of entrepreneurship now, uh, and maybe this was happening in the 70s, I'm not sure, has really shifted from the idea of controlling your financial destiny, your well-being, your livelihood, to expanding and making as much money as possible to be attractive to another buyer. Now, we don't see that with Julia Smart, but I think we can infer that that is how Weir sort of thinks of this company, that he inherits it and makes a lot of money from it from some means that maybe Julia Smart did not initially intend. And Weir definitely inherits the business from Julia Smart. So I think, you know, your idea here that Smart is operating in this worldview that what you do when you make a business, a successful business, right, what you're trying to do is create something that is going to be a part of the world, a part of a community, something that's going to be something of really an institution that you then can pass down to your family such that it can continue to be their life 
livelihood. Julius Smart passes this on to his only you know, relative, essentially, right? Is Weir. And of course, although it's not showing up in this story, at least not yet, and but but not showing up in some some like explicit ways, actually, like really sort of glaring ways, that Weir is someone that Julius Smart lived with for several years. And was someone that he was, you know, when, when, when Weir was a child. And so Julia Smart is something of a, a kind of stepfather to Weir, right? And so there is this inheritance here by Weir that's from someone who was kind of a father figure to him. This is also the story of James McAfee. It's the story of Stuart Blaine. These are people who have inherited their businesses, each of which is a big deal in this community, a big deal in Cashinsville. They've inherited these businesses from their parents as well. And that is definitely the sort of milieu in which Julia Smart is operating. It is not the milieu in which we operate today, as you've, you've pointed out. And so what's the bridge there? When does that transition happen? And where does Wolf fit in that and where does Weir fit in that, I think is a really fantastic question. And I, I hope that we'll see more of that as we go, because at some point we are going to have to find out what does actually happen to Weir's money. Uh, where where does he get the money? And then why is it gone such that like he can he he can't even heat his home? Like he still has this big crazy funhouse mansion, but can't actually afford to heat it in the wintertime. That is a backstory that we're going to have to get at some point. But my sense is that the wealth that he had didn't come from selling the business to somebody else, but actually just came from the fact that this is a business he owns. It's not stockholder shares. It's a business that he owns and that it was highly profitable. He may have done something to make it even more profitable than it was for Julius Smart. But also, you know, something that we know about the fourth suitor from chapter two, right? And I think we are assuming that Julius Smart really counts as the fourth suitor, but he's going to be the wealthiest person to uh, enter Olivia's life. And we've already been shown two of the three suitors who we met in chapter two as being quite wealthy on their own. So I think that we can infer from that, right, that Julius Smart did become very wealthy in his own lifetime. And we learned that Weir even gets to the point in his, I don't know, wealth building endeavor that he buys McAfee's or the company becomes becomes a conglomerate of some sort. And that company buys McAfee's. And hey, it might be the case that he also goes after Blaine's bank as well. We just don't know uh, how big this company gets, how many holdings it has, what Weir is really in charge of, if the factory becomes so wealthy that it becomes a, a food conglomerate of a sort. Um, a lot of a lot of questions, I think, left, as I said at the top of the episode. This chapter just does not answer any real questions about what this story is. No, it does not. But, you know, the way you've just characterized this, Brandon, I was like, what is this, the exact plot of Citizen Kane? Except like, well, actually... Maybe it is, right? <laughs> Terrible childhood, trying to sort of make up for it, make yourself feel better by just buying everything, by controlling everything, and then ultimately just being alone, just being a sad old man, dying alone in your your museum of a house. Yeah, this might actually be the novelization of Citizen Kane. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to think of it. There, there's some other questions we really need to, I think, dig into about the Julia Smart story here. And these are all fairly metatextual questions because Wolf invites us to think metatextually about this story. As I said when I was introducing this section, that this story really has this big influence on Weir and that we learn that because during two of the digressions that we get during the story, Weir tells us that he's tried to retell the story. Uh, the first time, it's because a, a salesman has come up with some sort of campaign for Smart or Weir's company to offer a carnival as a prize for soaking enough labels off the bottles of product and sending it back in. And that reminds Weir of this story. The second time is when Weir is on a date with Margaret Lorne and is clearly introducing and seducing her. He's got sex on his mind and he tells Lorne this story. So, I mean, this really stuck with Weir. It seems like it's an important thing for him to tell people at important moments. But during the digression, when Weir tells us about the time he told the story to Margaret Lorne, he says that the story was both faded and embroidered by time as it is now. 
So what we're really getting here is a kind of adapted retelling of Smart's story and, you know, adapted by Weir for his purposes. I don't think he's trying to seduce his readers like like he is with <laughs> Margaret Lauren. I don't think he's trying to impress us the way he is a salesman. So eventually we'll have to ask the question about how Weir is telling the story. But all of that was really just an argument to say, hey, I'm not just being a, a, a crazy English major. Like <laughs> Wolf, Wolf te- actually invites us to think of the story in this way. So it does lead to a number of questions. And the first question then that I have for you, Glenn, is do you think this, that this story, as it's told, happened to Julius Smart? Yeah, this is a great question. And this story is so awesome here in in, in this book and the way that Wolf and, and Weir are using this story. It's it's really just like, you know, layers of an onion, right? That we we get this top layer and then we peel that back and realize, ah, there's something behind that. Uh, peel back the next layer, right? Uh, there's something down there. But the question is, I guess, right, is there something actually in the middle of this story onion or is it hollow, right? Did this story actually happen to Julia Smart? Or is this something that he's completely made up? Or perhaps more likely, is is the the real answer? You know, is the truth of the matter somewhere in between? And I, I, I'm going to venture to say that the bulk of this story is not something that actually happened to Julia Smart. I believe that Julia Smart did go to whatever town this is, wherever it is in the South. Right? He won't say because people have the you know wrong idea or a bad idea about what life is like down there. But let's just say it's the Florida Panhandle, small town. He goes there and. Does does actually get a job working at a pharmacy, maybe even does kind of inherit it in some way. And they're in the sense that he continues to work there uh, even after the owner operator has, has passed away. But I don't think that any of this business with the carnival, the ghost, the mad science scene, I don't think any of that actually happened to Julia Smart. Uh, what do you think? I, I think the bones of the story are true, by which I mean like the main plot elements. So as you said, Glenn, yeah, Julia Smart had a hard time finding work out of school. He didn't have a pharmacy to inherit himself, which was something, you know, that he said a lot of the pharmacists at the time did. Their father were their fathers were chemists or or pharmacists and they got the business from them. Listen, that's turning out to be quite a theme of this discussion so far, which I did not expect to be the case. The, the idea of an inherited business being part of, um, you know, the American dream. But then, you know, Julius Smart's at going out there. He's hustling. He's a hard worker. And so, yeah, he goes down to Florida and does get a job at this pharmacy. The pharmacist might have had a, a tragic family story. He ends up dying. Julius inherits the business in a sense. He runs it. He lives in the home. He saves a ton of money uh, and then moves to Cashinsville. I also think he ran into a traveling carnival or maybe even had some of those people come into his shop. Uh, But I I also, there's too much uncertainty around who who was telling this story, why are they telling it, and what's going on to really buy 100% into anything other than the bones of this story, which really leads us to asking questions about what is the function of this story? How is this story being used in the text? And the first layer of that is really about why is Julius telling this story at the party? So what's the use of the story for Julius is really the next question. Yeah, right. This is a birthday party. It's Jimmy McAfee's birthday party. Olivia, who you know, I th- think we can safely say at this point, is always the life of the party. She knows how to throw a party, how to host a party. So she's got a party game ready to go. It's a storytelling cycle, a storytelling game. We're all going to tell a story. She kicks it off. And then it's Julius's turn. But Julius... Is is into this, right? He's ready to go with a, a type of story. He's he's into this idea, and we can see that other people at the party are not into this idea. And Stuart Blaine, I think it's Stuart Blaine, says you can't expect all of us to have a story like that, right, Olivia? Like we're not all going to be good at this. But Julia Smart is good at this, right? And I think he knows that this is a strength that he has. And so he's going to lean into this. I think that one of the tricks that he's doing is telling this story is, is working from a broad outline of a life that he actually lived. And also then telling a, a, a genre story with stock elements. But I think one of the things that is telling about, hey, he's totally making this up as he goes along, 
is though that when that we get this interruption right and there's this sort of question of like okay but then what happens he doesn't really know and so then he's like and then some carnies kidnapped me right <laughs> which is just like that's not the type of story we were just in we were in a totally different story and now all of a sudden you've got this right and to me i think that's one of the clues that that he's making this up as he goes but just in terms of what is julius doing with his story is he's just trying to really entertain people with a good story at this party. And I think also, I think it's clear as we get through the interjections that he immediately has something of a crush on Olivia, just like everybody else at the party does. And I think he would like to impress her. Yeah, I, I really love your pointing out here of the the shifting tones and genres of this story. Like it starts out with just kind of this, I was looking for work story. Then he adds this creepy element interjection. Is this a ghost story? Uh, it might be, it could, it could be, you know, and then it's a, a this adventure story about him uh, experiencing something at the carnival. The ghost story situation is never really resolved, strictly speaking, till he dies. And after till he dies, it's people that are haunted, not houses. So I don't have to worry about ghosts and all of the mystery of the ghost story, which ghost stories are really, you know, mystery tales in most cases, um, is left left hanging. Uh, it's not the focus of the story. And that actually gives the story a certain type of reality effect that like this happened and this happened. And yeah, they all happened. But sometimes in life, there's no outcome here. Like this stuff just happened. And it was a weird time in my life. You know, I think I have three stories like that that took place in my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next question we really have to ask is, in light of the fact that Wolf or Weir has invited us to think of this story metatextually, who is the teller? Why is it being told? The next question is, what is Weir doing with this story? Really, maybe the first question is, what has Weir tried to do when he's retold this story in the past, when he's embellished it after it's being been fade with time? What role does this story play in Weir's life as he reuses it and adapts it for his own purposes in the text of peace? So far, this book, as, as crazy, crazy as it has been, but so far, this book has kind of one really coherent motif going on, which is stories, right? That Weir is a person who really enjoys stories. He is a person for whom stories have really mattered in his life. And this book, whatever it actually is, you know, memoir, uh, just strange ramblings of uh, a man who's recently had a stroke <laughs> somewhere in between, whatever this turns out to actually be, is largely Weir just telling us other stories that he's encountered in his life, right? Some of it is new stories he's telling us now about his life, but a lot of it is just, I read this fairy tale book when I was a kid. Here's some stories from it. Or I heard someone else tell me a story once. Here's what it is. And, and that's literally what chapter three is. I mean, there's some other stuff going on, but the bulk of this chapter is just two stories he heard at someone else's birthday party being hosted by his aunt when he lived there when he was nine years old. And all of this features into the backdrop, and and we, I don't think we've emphasized it yet this episode, and I hope people get tired of us emphasizing it, because <laughs> it's the actual background of the novel that is easy to forget. But the whole inciting incident, apart from the you know elm tree falling, is we're being implicated in the death of another child. And everything that follows from that is really what this book is about on some level, even though this must have been a kind of happy time in Weir's life in some sense for him to spend so much time there when he's nine, you know, 10, 11 years old. And he also in this moment maybe really saw the power of storytelling in a way that hadn't struck him before. Uh, when you're just a kid reading a story in bed, you know what it's like to be enthralled when you see somebody enthrall others, it's, it's a really different, I think, situation that we know this moment is one of three big impressions that Weir had of Julius Smart. So yeah, I think we're, when he's retelling this story to other people, he's trying to enthrall them in some way. With the salesman, it doesn't work out, right? Because he doesn't finish the story and salesmen are storytellers of their own kind. <laughs> and with Margaret, it also doesn't seemed to lead in success if his goal was losing his virginity. But this story, I think, functions in Weir's life as an attempt to enthrall others when he's telling it. 
Yeah, I think in particular the the Margaret Lorne incident here is we're thinking about the real context of Julia Smart telling this story at the party. And then I guess, you know, sort of the next thing he knows, right, Julius and his Aunt Olivia are getting married. And so from the perspective of Weir, this is a seduction technique, right, is to tell a really amazing ghost story. Uh, maybe it has carnival people in there as well. Uh, maybe some other things going on, some mad sciencey stuff too. But like just, you know, to tell this story is how you get someone to want to be romantically involved with you. And so he tries it out on Margaret Lorne. It does not work. Uh, I think we're going to continue to learn more about his relationship with Margaret Lorne or lack of relationship with Margaret Lorne as the, the book continues. But that's kind of the immediate context, right? Is we're thinking about what adults do in the world. How does someone actually go about wooing another person? Well, you, you tell them a really great ghost story. So let me try that out. That's the exemplar that I have. I'm going to try it out. Doesn't work. But then the, the immediate catalyst with the salesman seems to actually be that they're talking about a carnival, right? Like that's what the salesman is is doing there. It's not a salesman, I guess, actually. He's the advertising agency man who's come to talk with him about the gimmick that they're going to use, right? This, this, you can, you know, this send back the labels and you can win a, a, a carnival. And so it seems like we're now is just kind of making small talk with this advertising guy, someone he's paying money to, right? Someone who he has hired, right? Another business that he's hiring to do the marketing, the advertising for his company. He's just, they're just talking about carnivals and he's saying, ah, I know a story about a carnival, but we see again, right? It doesn't actually capture his audience's attention. It, it doesn't work on this audience the way that it worked on him. And so, you know, we wonder like what's going on, what's going wrong perhaps with the way that Weir is telling this story in person to other people, because I have to say the way he's written it down here, I was compelled, right? Like this was a super amazing story. So it definitely, definitely worked on me reading the story the way he's written it, but it doesn't seem to work when he actually tries to tell it to people. Yeah. I mean, Weir's seduction strategy is essentially like seeing a movie other kids aren't allowed to see when you're in middle school and then coming <laughs> coming back to school and telling them about it and having a little group around you, you know? And uh, yeah, that, that, yeah, maybe that works in middle school, but uh, not, yeah, not when you're a little older, you have to show some force of personality. I think. <laughs> yeah. I, you're, you're also right to point out um, that a bunch of this novel so far kind of looked at from the thousand foot view is just a series of stories that we are likes, but they all sort of happen to be about him in some way, in some symbolic way. And we might make the same sort of leap uh, about this story. And that really leads us to wonder what Weir is doing telling us this story in the book. I mean, I think we have to wonder this about the entire novel. <laughs> like, why is Weir doing any of this? Why is he writing any of this down? And, and it is only recently, really, that we've been even told, shown explicitly that he is writing this down, right? And it's just totally unclear why he's doing that. But then even more specifically, why are we getting this story? Why are we getting Julia Smart's haunted house slash mad scientist slash carnival story? This story just shows up because it's the story that comes after the story of the Chinese officer at the birthday party. But the story of the Chinese officer ends up in this book, right? We're just launches into telling that seemingly out of nowhere, apropos of nothing. We don't get a catalyst. There's no, I was looking for my Boy Scout knife and I wandered into this room in my house and it had a picture of something and it reminded me of Jimmy McAfee's party. None of that. There's no frame for this. Like there's no catalyst for any of this, for the story cycle. So I have no idea what it's doing in this book, or at least, you know, from the perspective of we're right. Yeah. I mean, the catalyst is technically, technically, the thematic apperception test card being turned over. But that conceit is almost immediately disposed of, it feels like. I mean, we talked about this in our recap episodes, that what's on the thematic apperception test card, as we're able to determine it so far in the story about a woman giving a young man, the other person something, we don't know what that has to do with any of this stuff. And so it feels as though the conceit is dropped as soon as it's brought up because the story of the Chinese officer is launched into, and we don't even realize it's not a response 
to the thematic app perception test until a couple hundred words into that story. And that's a a brilliant technique. It, It really demonstrates what we see maybe in mirrors what we see at the end of the chapter that that Weir is casting his mind back in order to make sense of these different moments. And we're really caught up then in this question of, is Weir having these involuntary memories or is he intentionally casting himself back into these moments? It's It's still a little unclear to me. Let me just ask you a very specific, very focused question here, Brandon. Do you think that Weir actually tells the story about the Chinese officer, retells the story that Olivia tells at this birthday party to Dr. Van Ness when he's shown this card? No, I don't. I think he's casting his mind back, but I think it doesn't matter because all of these characters are in his head and he can address them however he wants and they might be witnesses to his story in a weird way. But that that kind of causes a problem, I think, because we talked about how this novel, as Weir has presented it to us in this chapter, is not a novel of interiority. That is to say, it's not written by anybody. It's just representing the thought life of somebody, something like Ulysses or something like that. This is a book that is being intentionally written down. And so Wolf, the author, is really mixing this kind of style of the novel of interiority with the intentional references to the audience that let us know that it's also being written down. And so I I wonder sometimes if part of this book isn't interior and part is exterior. Yeah. And then I think we have to wonder, you know, which is which and, and how can we tell? Because I think there's another question about, you know, what actually is going on with this, you know, these visits to the the, the doctors, right? Where uh, he seems, to, you know, in some way to at least think that what he's doing is actually inhabiting the, bo- the body of himself when he's younger and talking to these doctors. And then we have some of these other incidents, mostly in, in chapter one, where, He's showing up seemingly right like at other things too, like his birthday party. And the frame for this chapter are two doctor visits, right? One to Dr. Van Nest, the other to Dr. Black, where, yeah, this is Weir who is telling us anyway that he's visiting these doctors and like having these real live conversations with these doctors he knew when he was younger and is in some way actually younger in these moments. And then we get, yeah, the laying down of this card by Dr. Van Ness. And then just immediately we're in the Chinese officer story. And then at the first break of that, the interruption is where we realize that we are at a moment earlier in Weir's life. And I'm going to continue to advocate for the sort of more speculative fiction reading of what's going on, uh, just to take that line here and let you take something a little more, <laughs> a little more tempered there. But I'm going to take the the sort of extreme stance here that Weir actually is kind of bouncing around quantum leap style, <laughs> you know, in, in the time of his own life and through his own lifetime, and that he's actually bounced from Dr. Van Ness back to this birthday party and is kind of witnessing it anew, uh, or at least that might be one one reading of it. I think explicitly then later in this chapter, right, he says, I have translated the story or I've adapted the story, right? This is not literally what I heard Julius Smart tell. But I wonder if, you know, there's a layer in there where he snapped back out after Olivia's story or something like that. Yeah, there, there's no way of knowing. I disagree with that reading entirely. <laughs> my, my reading is that we are uh, so far feels compelled to write this stuff down, feels compelled to obscure certain things, but that all of these other stories we're getting told about from the past are all things that are about Weir in some sense. Uh, And yeah, I cannot wait for our wrap-up episode to go through like, okay, we've had two stories about, uh, you know, people trying to get married or something, and that's gone poorly. We have, you know, all all this stuff going on, you know, what's the Banshee story about? What's the Irish stuff about? What's the Native American stuff about? What's the tracking of Americana about? There are all these things going on that Weir is connecting in ways that is just so complex and so dense. And yet this book just moves. I mean, as we've said, this bit of chapter three, Julia Smart's story was 
Uh, it's my favorite part of the novel so far. It's unbelievable. But we should take a moment and then to, to, to return to this story of the Chinese <laughs> officer, uh, since we've already brought it up here. And this will probably close out our episode. We have to ask the same sort of questions here. Why does Weir tell this story? My reading, as I've said, is that it's about him in some sense. The imagery about the Chinese officer laying down and living a whole life without realizing that he's still asleep. This is a, a mirror image of a sort to Weir talking about dying after he got his chemistry set and all of his life afterwards was an illusion. I'm not sure what the connection is here, but there is a connection, at least textually. Why Why do you think Weir is writing this story or telling it? Yeah. I mean, this story, I think, has so many resonances with Weir's own story, where the chemistry set and the idea that maybe he's actually dead in some way. I mean, I think like that's a real resonance here. But another one, just sort of more thematic, is that in the Chinese officer story, and then also in this story, in peace, right? We've got an old man who, by all sort of objective social and, I don't know, economic measurements, has done extremely well for himself, perhaps against the the, the odds, although I think for Weir, it's not against the odds. But for the Chinese officer, it is. Uh, but then he's looking back at his life and saying... I don't know. I could have made different choices. And wasn't it really awesome, actually, when I had all this promise in front of me, except that I didn't actually know I had all this promise in front of me because I was too concerned about my own problems in that moment. But now in hindsight, I see what a, what a fortunate person I was at that moment. And that could be weird thinking about his own childhood, which is, I think, both marred and, and scarred by the death of Bobby Black the abandonment by his parents, that this is almost certainly something that he has some resentment about. Something we've seen hinted at in chapter two is that now that Bobby Black has died, he maybe isn't playing with other kids nearly so much, but it also might just be that he's not that into that idea. But he seems lonely. Like all the people in his life are these adults, right? And I don't think that this was actually a great time for Weir when he was living it. The way that he's telling this story now, right? I mean, this all seems awesome. It seems cool, right? So it seems like this is an old man thinking back on uh, his younger life and appreciating it now in ways that he couldn't then and wishing he had it to do over again. That's my feeling exactly. That we're, in telling this story, isn't really thinking about the thematic app perception test or the prompt on the card. The way we, we may see that that's different, that there's some connection there, but that he is uh, now, as an old man, wishing for a second chance, that he just didn't realize how good he had it. You know, Maybe things get a lot worse when his parents come home. And I think that that might be indicated. We'll talk about his father in the next episode. His mother's only mentioned once in Someone Who Loves Ghost Stories, probably because she was raised by Hannah as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, that this this story has that thematic resonance, apart from the connection of those two images I mentioned earlier, that the thematic resonance is, well, I, I wish I could do things differently. And does me wishing that mean that I'm not grateful for what I have? It seems to me as though Weir is not particularly grateful for what he's gotten out of life. No, he doesn't seem to be grateful at all. We, we, we've talked before about how Weir doesn't really maybe seem like someone we'd actually enjoy hanging out with, uh, someone we would want to be friends with. Uh, certainly his employees at the bar don't, don't feel that way about maybe anybody <laughs> in management. Uh, but nonetheless, he's telling a beautiful story that I'm super into. Yeah, I mean, Charlie Scudder at least is willing to buy him a beer. So, I mean, <laughs> how bad can Charlie Scudder be? <laughs> we know nothing about him. Well, I guess one other question we can ask here is to zoom out even further and look at Wolf as the architect of this novel and wonder why Wolf has included this story at the start of chapter three. Why not just jump right to Julius smart story and set up the frame a different way. Yeah, I don't have a real good answer for this. This is something I kind of want to punt to the the final wrap-up episode, but I do have maybe a meta-textual thought about 
some of the way this novel is functioning, chapter two and chapter three, especially, right? The places where we're getting these stories within the story. And here in particular, in this chapter, we have one short story and then we have one novelette, at least it might actually you know, be long enough to properly qualify as a novella. And I don't think you, Brandon, either actually know the answer to this question. So I'm just going to present it to you and then say, uh, this is something I, I hope that we'll be able to get Mark Aramini back on the show to ask him about, to talk with him about. But I kind of have the sense that both stories in this chapter, the Chinese officer and the Mr. Tilly ghost story, I kind of have the sense that these are short stories that Wolf wrote and hadn't sold to magazines. <laughs> And was saying, what do I, what do I do with these stories, right? That this whole novel piece in some way, at least chapter two and chapter three are kind of fix up novels that he's got some stories sitting around and was going to put them in a novel, you know, and revise them, make them work in the novel and so on. But that he didn't write these stories for the novel originally. The Chinese officer story has in some ways like superficial resemblances to dead man. Uh, the the early like oh, yeah. young wolf story. It's about another culture. It's about a ghost or a, a person like returning to their life in some sense. But it's really I. It's hard for me to like really quantify how I feel they resemble one another. I just feel like it's it's another of that sort of experimental time in Wolf's life, and he thought well, I've got a character who really likes Chinese stuff. Maybe I can repurpose this story. I am certain it has more of a of an intertextual importance that we <laughs> just can't see yet in peace. Well, we have a lot more to cover and we're going to save that for our next episode. So that is going to do it for our first discussion episode of Chapter 3 of Peace. We hope you enjoyed our talk of it. Stay tuned for more to come. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman. If you are not already with us on Patreon, we would love to have you join us there at patreon.com slash Clay Temple Media. Your support it means so much to us. It also keeps the show going. We also think you get a lot in return for that support. And that includes our newest episode, which is a conversation about Wolf's short story cues. And so, yeah, that's it for this one. Next time, we'll be back with part two of our chapter three discussion. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.